going to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul, being greatly annoyed, and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we again just want our hearts to be turned to you, to hear from you, and for you to speak to us, and that we would be walking in the truth with you, God, worshiping you in spirit and truth. So I pray that our we would hear your voice, God, and that you would be honored and glorified within our hearts as we look at your word together. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we saw, Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he started out with the intention of just going through Asia Minor, revisiting the churches that they'd already been at, and, um, and encouraging them. But they kept being blocked by the Holy Spirit. They were going south, nope, north, north, nope, east, nope. And so then Paul had a vision of a Macedonian in the vision saying, come over to us. And so they concluded that was God's will for them. And they've taken a boat and by, it got there in record time. I think that's why this is being high, highlighted in verse 11. Straight course, they got there quickly and made their way to Philippi because it was a Roman colony and a very significant, influential city. And from that point on, nothing went probably as Paul planned, as most missionary trips don't. We just sent all of our students off today on a missionary trip, so that's why there's not as many folks here. And so they're making their way to Nacogdoches, Texas, and they're going to be there for the week. And we have our plans. And I'm sure by the end of the week they'll say, um, didn't quite happen the way that we planned. We used to take trips to Mexico every year, And the one word we would tell the students that they must keep in mind was the word flexible. Be flexible. And we have, I could stand and tell you story after story of many of all the things that have happened over the years in those trips. Just one, I remember, I mean, it was just just one disaster after another. And and, and I I, I don't remember all of them, but I remember we pulled into this, we had finished up our missions trip, we were going to stop at one town, have some ministry there, sleep in the church that we were ministering at, and then the next day be heading home to Texas, Lord willing. And as we pulled into the city, 
the bus broke down just as we pulled up to the curb. I mean, it just literally died right there at the curb of the church. Uh, this is great. And be flexible. And so then we're unloading the bus, and as we're unloading the bus, as one of the students stepped off and immediately severely broke her ankle. Compound break. I mean, it just, just shattered her ankle. Oh, this is wonderful. And, uh, and it's just be flexible, be flexible. And so, you know, and, and the Lord just started making things happen. And, and right across the street, literally just across the street, there was a garage. And they were able to fix our bus. Amazing. And a doctor from the church came out and, and just by hand manipulated this girl's ankle and, and set, reset it and stabilized it. And when we got back to the States, the doctor said it was amazing that that doctor was able to, to do what he did, just with nothing but just manipulating it by his hands. Great. So we're leaving, and we're on our way back to Texas where everything's normal, right? And I just get on, and when I get on the highway, I'm driving the, the pickup truck, and, and we just got on the highway, still in Mexico, and the whole hood of the pickup blows up. And so I can't even see. I'm on the highway, 60 miles an hour, and I can't see because, you know, just, you're in Mexico. Be flexible. So I say that because Paul here has, has come to Macedonia expecting to probably find a synagogue. Didn't happen. Expecting to find some men whose hearts are open to the Lord. Didn't happen. And, and, one, and, and, and maybe to get a church started that's going to be half Jew, half Gentile, everybody hungry for the Lord, didn't happen. And so this is, this is typical. I mean, God is the one who is ordering life. And, and he is ordering the steps of Paul in the events that take place. So as was his custom when he came to a town, he would look for a synagogue because the people there would already have a foundation in their hearts of the scriptures, and that's a good place to start. No synagogue. You had to have at least 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. And this leading Roman colony did not have 10 Jewish men. But there was a place of prayer. They'd been there for a few days. He's checking things out. Somebody tells him there's a group of people praying down by the river. And so he and his companions, they go down there, and they find this place of prayer, but it's only women. Now, remember the vision? Macedonian man, come help us. So I think Paul was probably thinking they're going to have a men's ministry, right? But it's women, all women. And he doesn't hesitate. He just jumps in and starts sharing the gospel with them. It's significant because the Pharisees actually said, and Paul had been a Pharisee, better to burn the scriptures than to share it with a woman. Wow. And so you can see how Paul's heart has changed. And that's, this is amazing what God has done in Paul's heart. I remember talking to a, um, the wife of, of one of the leaders um, in Torchbearers, and um, she was not happy with some of the things that Paul says in Scripture about women. And, um, and I said, well, you don't really think he was a male chauvinist, do you? And she goes, Yeah. And I went, wow. So that's why I think God's given us these little snippets, snippets of life for Paul. Because just no commentary, but just the fact that he sat down with these women and shared the gospel with them without hesitation, and I don't think with any sense of disappointment, and this is so radically different than what he would have done before he came to Christ, tells us 
that there's no problem in Paul's heart toward women. Not at all. Read Romans chapter 16 and see all the women that he's commending in Rome. And this is a man who is not prejudiced in the least um, when it comes to the sexes. So he, he finds these women. They're assembled for prayer. Verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Well, guess where, Lydia, where, where Thyatira is? It's not where he is. It's not in Macedonia. It's where he came from. See, he, it's Asia Minor, modern-day Greece. I mean, Turkey, where Paul was. And he had been going, trying to go to Thyatira, as well as these other cities, and the Spirit was shutting it down. No. You can't go there. I want you to go to Macedonia. He goes to Macedonia, and the first person he meets is a woman from where he was. And so it, you can see how God is orchestrating this. God's concerned for Thyatira. He wants the people of Thyatira to know him. But Paul send, God sends Paul to Macedonia to find a person from Thyatira to share Christ with, and you know she's going to go back home, and, and, and under her influence there's going to be people who hear about Christ. She's a seller of purple. Purple was considered a, um, the most precious of all colors, and the Romans had laws on who could wear it. Not just anybody could wear purple. I've seen a few women with purple hair, and I think there should be laws. But um, <laughs> the Romans had laws about who could wear purple. And so she would be mixing with the highest people in society. The people that only the people who could wear purple would be the ones that she would be doing business with. So she is way up there, an elite businesswoman. And we know she comes to the Lord. We're told that she is a worshiper of God and not a believer. Now, I, I read that, I go, no problem. But there are a lot of folks who there's the, their theology won't accept this. Because if you believe that before you're a Christian, you are so spiritually dead that you cannot respond to God because you are dead like a corpse, then this verse is a big problem. This woman is spiritually dead, as all people are before they receive Christ. And she is a worshiper of God. There is no contradiction here. Spiritual death does not mean you are dead like a corpse. It simply means you are separated from God. And people separated from God can talk to God, pray to God, be convicted of their sins, and I like to say, you've heard me say it before, if you want to know what you're capable of doing when you're spiritually dead, look at Adam after he sinned. Look at Jesus while he was hanging from the cross, paying for our sins, separated from God, and, and the words that he was communicating to God during that time. Those are two men, spiritually dead, and you're able to see what they're capable of doing. It simply means separated from God. It doesn't mean that you do not have a spirit. It doesn't mean that you have no God consciousness. She is a worshiper of God, and she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken for Paul, by Paul. Yes, God opens hearts. That's not a problem. We acknowledge that, that God opens the heart of everyone who believes. What we deny is that God um, coercively, by irresistible grace, forces people to believe. And that he only does that for some people, the elect. 
what the scripture tells us is that the spirit is convicting the world of its sin. And Jesus says that all men are being drawn to him. It's true that God opened Lydia's heart, but it's also true she did the believing. And God did not open her heart against her will. She heard, she was already a worshiper of God, she hears, God opens her heart, and she believes. She responded to the things spoken by Paul. So the first person who comes to Christ in Macedonia is a woman, businesswoman, who had been a worshiper of God before Paul even met her. So she's at the one end of the spectrum, okay? And then she invites them to stay with her while they're in Philippi. She would have had a large home, and it would have been entirely appropriate for her, considering the size of her home and the number of servants that she'd had, to take these four men in as her guests. Nothing inappropriate about it. All of her household is baptized. This does not mean children. It means just everybody who is under her employment, who is part of her, um, her economy that she, was, that she was in charge of. They all believed and they also were baptized. And so then Paul, it says in verse 16, that it happened that as they were going to the place of prayer, so this would have been at least a week later, that there was this slave girl with a spirit of divination who kept um, crying out, men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. It irritated Paul. He had enough of that, and so he commanded the demon to come out, and the demon did. Now, I don't know whether this girl got saved or not. I kind of think she probably did, but we don't know for sure. But this is now another woman, slave girl, so a young woman, at the other end of the spectrum from Lydia. Lydia, respected, God-fearing, ethical woman, slave girl, demon-possessed. Couldn't get two women more far apart on the spectrum. And she is nothing but just property to the men that owned her, valuable property, because people would pay to have their fortunes told by this girl who was demon-possessed. This isn't meant to be a... a, a um, theology on, on Satan and demons, but there's a lot here that we can learn, and we know from this passage that Satan can predict the future with some degree of precision. We, don't, we know he is not, not omniscient, only God knows the future perfectly, but Satan's been around long enough, he can have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen before it happens. First John says that Satan is is the evil one, and the world is un all the earth is under the control of the evil one. So if this whole world is under his control and he is the God of this world, then I believe he's also manipulating things to happen as he wants them to happen. He has many, many people who are under his control. So it's not surprising that Satan can predict what's going to happen when he is in control of people, um, and so he can has some control over the events that take place all under the sovereignty of our God. We know that he can speak the truth, even though he is the father of lies. And through this slave girl, he, had, he is proclaiming, these men are the bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Every word of that was true. I don't like that. I'd like to think that every word that comes out of Satan's mouth is a lie. But that would not be true. Satan can speak the truth. We know in the temptation accounts of Christ, Luke chapter 4 in particular, 
that Satan quotes from the, from the book of Psalms twice. Throw yourself down, out. The angels will come and bear yourself up. Quotes from Psalms. The devil knows the Bible. I dare say he knows it better than most Christians do. And he's willing to use it, to twist it to his advantage. So why did Paul all of a sudden get irritated? I don't know. How long did he, did this girl, at least a week, this girl's falling around? Servants of the Most High God. Why did it take him so long to get, why, why was he just annoyed? Why does it say that he was, felt compassion in his heart for this girl and the demon possession that she was afflicted with? I don't know. But God uses all kinds of things, and he can even use being annoyed to accomplish his will. Why, why would the devil do this, proclaim the truth? It might have been so that he could set the stage for proclaiming a lie. Next. Speak the truth, speak the truth, get people responsive, and then speak a lie. So why would I not? And how do you know? If you're not a Christian, how do you know then? If, if part of it's true and part of it's wrong, and so you can see how this would get all messed up in people's minds. So in the one moment, servants of the Most High. In the next moment, you must work for your salvation. Well, that would be a lie. So why would I believe half of it, not the other half? Also, it's just the idea here, how good is it to have Satan endorsing your ministry? I mean, is that really what you want? To have Satan endorsing your ministry. And that's what's happening here. And so it's just like politicians, and Paul's not a politician, but politicians today, the last thing they want is to have the Ku Klux Klan endorsing them, right? No. Even if what they're saying is right and true, no, I don't want your endorsement. And Paul knew that it wouldn't be good to have a demon-possessed girl running around speaking the truth. I read one commentary and says, this girl, this demon speaking through the girl may have been speaking sarcastically. We don't know. These are the servants of the Most High God. They're telling you the way of salvation with sarcasm. Don't you love sarcasm? I'm being sarcastic. I was, I got to tell you some sarcasm. I was mowing somebody else's yard on Friday, my riding lawnmower. Like being on my riding lawnmower, don't have to think, you know, you just... Just mow. Well, I should have been thinking because I got a little too close to the cliff. And it started to slide off the cliff. Because we've got cliffs at his hill, canyons, you know. And I'm mowing on the side of the canyon, and it just starts to go. And I'm thinking, it's not good. <laughs> and, and so I wasn't sure what to do. Blades are running, and I'm about to go off the canyon. And I figured, if, if I go sideways, I'm going to be rolling down the hill. So better to spin it around. I can't keep from going off. Better to spin it around and go head first than to be rolling. And so I spun it around and it stopped teetering on the cliff. So I'm not in a good place. And so I'm able to get off the mower. Didn't go off the cliff. I got off the mower and I called up my my favorite son-in-law, Mark. And I said, Mark, get Alex, our maintenance intern, and come up here and help me because I can't get this mower. It's, it's, you know, it's starting to go off the cliff, and I need help pulling it out of here. And so we got it pulled out, no problem. And then I said, man, I tell you, I, for my whole life flashed before my eyes. 
And my favorite son-in-law said, how long was that flash? <laughs> and Alex says, yeah, that must have been a really long flash. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you what, no respect. You get it. I didn't die, the mower didn't die. But the sarcasm was killing me. So we don't know the tone or anything. We just know Paul was going, it's never a good thing to have Satan endorsing you. And he just quickly, impulsively almost, just says, come out of her. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. I have known three or four different people, um, some from a distance, two personally, uh, who have had deliverance ministries where they, their focus of their ministries have been getting people set free from demonic oppression. Christians, not possession, but oppression. But the, it, it's the, only, the difference is largely semantic when it comes to the effect, because Christians can be so oppressed by the devil that for all practical purposes it can look like demon possession. Each of those men no longer do what they were doing. And I'm thankful that they haven't. After years, some of them decades, involved in deliverance ministry, they, all of them have stopped. And they have come to the place of recognizing that it just wasn't healthy to spend so much time focused on Satan and what he was doing and how to be delivered from him. And I agree. I believe that this is a demon-filled world. And much of what we see going on around us is satanic in origin. And we need to realize that, that things are much more spiritual than we often think. The political stuff that's going on, the battle now that's going to be taking place over the president's Supreme Court nominee, the election itself, these are spiritual matters. They are not just political. And there are demons involved with what's going on. And as Christians, I'm becoming more and more convinced we must pray in accordance with the spiritual battle. And not, it's not, because we're, as Paul says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. I've said before, years ago, last time I was, um, I, one of our staff guys and I were in Germany looking up former students and spending time with them. And, um, and things were crazy then, just insane. And that was the word. The Christians in Germany had gotten to the place where things were becoming so insane. They were waking up and saying, we can't reason out of this. It is insanity what we're dealing with. And smart people being this insane, it has to be spiritual. And that's what we're seeing. And, there says, and, the, and these guys were telling us, this one guy said, Charlie, the church in Germany now is praying against principalities and powers. We're praying like we are engaged in a spiritual battle, because we are. And we should be doing that here in the States. There's much more demon activity going on than what we realize. People ask me from time to time, why don't we see demon possession? I, and, I'm, and I'm not so, I used to say, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just not here. And now I'm saying, it's probably all around us, and we're just not recognizing it for what it is. We're living in Satan's world.
He is the God of this world. And there are many more people who are under his influence than what we often think. I don't think that God would have us always go around casting out demons. I do know he wants us to go around preaching Jesus. And on occasion, a very rare occasion, there may be the opportunity to, where God would have us make a direct confrontation like this. But it's going to be extremely rare. I have a friend who's a church planner in Milan, Italy. He's been there for a long time. And he's not a guy focused on demons at all. But he told me that a couple years ago or so now, maybe a little longer, he was doing an outdoor campaign, as he often does. He was preaching outdoors, had a team of people with him, leading songs, talking to people that were listening. And there was one man standing there who just kept constantly shouting him down. He couldn't preach because of this one man who was constantly shouting him down. And this very solid evangelical pastor friend of mine had never done anything like this in his life, but he just found himself just being annoyed in his spirit. He couldn't continue to minister with this guy just, shot, just heckling him, shouting him down. And he said, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, be silent. He'd never done anything like that in his life. He didn't even know if what he was dealing with was demonic. He just, just an irritation of a spirit. That's what he said. And the guy just froze. He finished his entire sermon, closed it in prayer, and the guy walked away quietly. And he goes, I don't know what just happened. He says, but all of us on our team are going, what just happened? Even that guy, he's just standing there like, you know, he didn't say a word after he commanded him in the name of Jesus to be silent. I have no problem theologically with that happening. I believe that God still works that way today. I just believe, just as with Paul, it was not a focus of ministry for him, neither should it be a focus of ministry for us. But there may be those times where God's going to just provoke our spirits, as Paul was provoked, and say, enough is enough, in the name of Jesus. And at that very moment, the demon came out, and her masters were so thankful that this girl has finally gotten hope. No. They saw that the hope of their prophet was gone. They had one concern, money, greed. And they weren't happy. So this is, will be the first of a couple of occasions in Acts where Paul is going to be arrested and beaten because people lost money because of his ministry. Money is the god of this world in many ways. And so they... They, they accuse them of proclaiming what is not lawful for the, for the Romans to accept or observe. That wasn't their problem. Their problem was loss of profit. But they know they can't have them arrested because of that, so they say these guys are violating Roman law, which they were not. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them, so humiliated them, and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Now, 
Paul will write the letter to the Philippians later and say, rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. And if there's anybody who could say that and make an impact, it was the Philippian people because they would have remembered when he was sitting in prison rejoicing in his circumstances. Amazing. And all the prisoners were listening, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison house were were shaken. Everyone's chains fell off. And when the jailer had been roused out of his sleep and had seen the prison door standing wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Because if they escape, then the punishment for him is death. So he figured, figured better to just kill himself than to be killed by the Romans. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Pretty straightforward question. Simple, direct question. What must I do to be saved? This man is just totally impressed and undone by what he has seen. Clearly, God at work. Not just in the earthquake and the chains falling off and no one escaping. But he's been listening to these men sing praises to God. <coughs> Probably being an intelligent man, he understood why they had been thrown in prison. Because a demon girl has had her demon cast out and the masters knew that they, their hope of money was gone. And this man recognizes his need and asks the most simple question, direct question that anybody could ask, what must I do to be saved? How would you answer that? In the adult Sunday school class, one of the ladies said that, that she was looking at applications for student ministry position, and all but one student made reference to the need for works. Christian kids in a Christian ministry. That your relationship with God depends upon works. I ask our students at the beginning of every year, we ask them, what must you do to be saved? And all of our students write testimonies saying how they've gotten saved, that they belong to Jesus. You would be amazed how few of them will come close to answering that question the way that Paul does. There is almost always some element of works involved. What must I do to be saved? There used to be an evangelistic program that was very popular among the churches called Evangelism Explosion. came out of a church in Florida. Not a bad program. And they would start, have you start a conversation with somebody by asking the question, if you were to stand before God after having died, you, you enter heaven and you're standing before God and God says to you, why should I allow you into heaven? What would you say? It's a pretty good diagnostic question. You're going to have, find out pretty quick where people are coming from. I tell our camp counselors they should, they should ask a question like that on, the, on Sunday night when the kids get in. What must you do to be saved? What would you say? And Paul's answer is as simple as the question. Verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Believe 
in the Lord Jesus. That's all. He doesn't say, be baptized. He doesn't say, repent of your sins. He doesn't say, confess your sins. He doesn't say, pray a prayer. Now, all those things may be wrapped up together, but they are peripheral. I heard a girl recently who was saying, I, I am saved because my parents made me pray a prayer when I was a little girl. I did not want to pray the prayer, but I prayed the prayer. And she thinks she's saved. I don't know that she's not saved, but it would not be because of what she said. Praying a prayer never saved anyone, especially if you prayed against your own will. Paul couldn't be more clear. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. So what are we to believe? Let's go over just quickly to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, just a tremendous passage, verse 12. As many as received him. And as many as means as many as. Which is exactly what it says. It's unconditional. It's unlimited. As many as receive him. To them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. So receive and believe are synonymous in this verse. Receive Christ. Believe in his name. And we know from the context, we're believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who created this world, came into this world, taking on humanity, died for our sins, rose again from the dead so that we might have eternal life. And he is offering us the free gift of eternal life, which is himself. Christ is eternal life. And so we receive him. And in doing so, we are receiving eternal life. And it's merely a gift. There's nothing you have to do to receive a gift, and you cannot take any credit for receiving a gift. See, some people say that you have to be regenerated before you can believe. And they say that in part because they say, if you, if you believe to be saved, then you can take credit for your faith. And then faith becomes a works. One of the professors at my, my alma mater from college is teaching his theological students that faith is a work. And that if you have to believe to be saved, then you can take credit for your own salvation. Leading evangelical Bible college. I'm disappointed. Faith is not a work. And there is no boasting in exercising faith. By faith, receiving a gift. Receive, believe. If that's not clear enough, in verse 13, John says, who were born not of blood. You can't be born a Christian. Nobody enters this life saved. You are born separated from God. So blood or natural birth does not make you a child of God nor of the will of the flesh. You cannot will yourself into being a Christian, a child of God. No person can choose 
by his own willpower to become a Christian. We become children of God by God's power, not by ours. We simply receive. We simply believe. And by God's power, we become children of God. And then, nor by the will of man. No one can confer child status on another person. I do not have the power as a, as a pastor or elder of a church to make somebody, to declare somebody else saved. Only God can save. And we are saved by the power of God in response to receiving Christ, believing in Christ, and we are saved. It is 100% the work of God. 100% His work. All we do is say thank you. What do you do when you get a gift? Thank you. So we receive the gift by faith and simply say thank you God for saving me. Totally His work. And that's why, as Paul will say in Romans 4, we cannot just be assured of our salvation, but we can be certain of our salvation. And he uses the word certain because it has nothing to do with our activity. It has everything to do with his activity. So I'd ask again, I would hope that every person in this fellowship would know how to answer that question. If somebody were to ask you today as you walk out of this church, what must I do to be saved? That your simple, clear answer would be, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It is no more complicated than that. So now we have a third person, at least two, but maybe three that have come to faith in Christ. Lydia, elite businesswoman, God-fearing, moral, ethical person. Slave girl, and now pagan jailer. Now, I don't mean by pagan that he had no sense of God or religion, because as a Roman, he would have worshipped the emperor and many other gods as well. So he's not an atheist, but he's not a God-fearing man as we would think of a God-fearing man. He's a man that we would call more of a humanist. He's learned how, what it takes to get through life. He is a military man, probably retired military. That's why most of these, uh, the Romans that were in Philippi were retired military, had the status of a centurion by being in charge of the jail system. No insignificant person. But he would have been, again, not in the same category as your typical God-fearing person like Lydia that you would find. So this wasn't Paul's plan for when he went there. You know that. He goes, I think I'll start a church with an elite businesswoman, a former demon-possessed girl, and the city jailer. I mean, only God could do that. But he goes there thinking he's going to have a men's ministry, and God starts to put together this church. And it's not just these individuals, but Lydia's whole household has been saved, and the jailer's whole household is saved. This is a pretty good start. But it's nothing that Paul could have orchestrated. And so they, he believes, the whole household believes, and, and the next day, the jailer receives a message, send the guys out, they can go. And Paul goes, I don't think so. And so he says in verse 37, Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. So this is curious. 
I mean, he could have just walked out of prison scot-free. But he goes, no. You make those guys who beat us come down here and basically apologize to us and recognize what they did was an injustice. We are Roman citizens, and this should have never happened to us. I don't know, maybe Paul was trying to tell them that they were Roman citizens and, and the crowd just wouldn't listen. But what happened was illegal, and Paul's not going to let it slide. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and, when they, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them, and then when they brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison, and they entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them, and they departed. Why would Paul feel it was so important to have them come and publicly apologize? Well, I think the most obvious reason is, if Paul had snuck out of town, that would have left these new believers in a bad state. Because the guy that's told them about Christ and has completely turned their worlds upside down for good has now been beaten and, he's, and, he, and he is just slinking out of town like a criminal. And that would not have helped them in this new fellowship. And I believe Paul had them in mind most. And so now, if it's, it's just as it was a public beating, it would have been public knowledge that it should have never happened. So if it shouldn't have happened to Paul, then it sure shouldn't happen to those who are following Paul either. And so this would have been a tremendous help to this young church to have Paul exonerated. And I think it's their welfare that he primarily had in mind. But a second thing is it's going to help Paul with his future travels because news spreads. And so not only would there be news that Paul was beaten in Philippi, but there would also be the news he was exonerated. It should have never happened. It was an illegal thing that happened. But I wonder if there's not a third thing here. Paul will write in Romans that government is a minister of God for the punishing of evil. And this government in Philippi has overstepped its authority. And being that Paul knows that it is a minister of God, government needs to be held accountable. And it would be no good for anybody in Philippi, believer or unbeliever, for government to abuse its authority the way that it did in the case of Paul and Silas. And so Paul knows he's not only helping the church, he's helping unbelievers by insisting that government stay within its bounds and not violate the rights of its citizens. Again, I don't mean to make this a political message, but oftentimes as Christians, we don't know what our role is when it comes to government and society. Passages like this are helpful. We are not doing wrong by holding government accountable to live within the laws that have been established and not to violate those laws. We are doing what is right to insist that government function as government was intended to function. More Christians ought to step up, speak up, and say this is wrong. So this is not at all a life, a ministry that Paul could have predicted. But isn't it divine? <laughs> and even getting beaten publicly, humiliated, thrown into jail, God's using it all. Because not only does it, again, exonerate Paul, but it shows this city 
that what these few people have now accepted in, in believing in Jesus, they're not fools. But there is something here that goes way beyond anything they could explain. Lives transformed. Demon-possessed girl freed. Everything about this is there is a God, and he is the most high God. And it is only wise to turn to him in faith and to receive him in faith as the only one who can take us from being those who are enmity with God and make us children of God. I'll close us in prayer. God, we thank you for passages of Scripture like this that show us that, that you are the Most High God, you are in control, and that you're in the business of directing the steps of your children. And I pray that, Lord, we would see life as you see it, that each person that we come into contact with is an opportunity for making Christ known, and that we would not put limits, Lord, on who you would bring to yourself, we see here that people from every aspect of society over these few weeks that Paul's in Philippi heard and believed with no, any, no one class of person being excluded from your love and your care and your saving mercies. I pray, God, that our heart would be as large as yours and that we would live with eyes open to what you are doing and want to do through us, and we would not limit you by our own expectations and agendas. And I thank you, God, that the power of God today is still, the gospel is still today the very power of God unto salvation. And I pray that we would see it as such and never lead anyone to anything other than to simple faith in Jesus, because Jesus saves. In Christ's name, amen.